On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Patrick Schreiner about the Ascension. We cover topics like what is the Ascension? Why does it matter? How is it related to the gospel? Why has it been so neglected? And much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you're free to hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or you can email us the old-fashioned way at contact at thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum, a place for friendly discussion and debate that is designed to generate deep and clear thinking. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your other host, Brandon Askew. And today, I'm really looking forward to introducing you to our new friend, Dr. Patrick Schreiner, talking about the topic of his new book, The Ascension of Christ. I think he's going to talk about a little bit about why that's neglected, uh, what that all means, uh, and I'm really excited about it because even now, I before the show started, I just started Googling uh, some Baptist confessions, and it seems like the word is completely missing. So unless they used a different word for ascension, which I'm not aware of, uh, it does seem to be neglected. So I'm, I'm looking forward to finding out, picking your brain on that. So Patrick, I imagine most of our listeners probably know who you are, but I'm going to let you just give a brief intro to who you are in case someone doesn't know. And then maybe you just tell us a little bit, why did you get interested in the topic of the ascension? Yeah. Thanks for having me, Jordan and Brandon. It's good to be with you guys. Uh, I'm I'm a teacher here at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary as of actually like three weeks ago or the uh, 14 days ago, beginning of August. And so I teach New Testament and biblical theology here. I'm married to Hannah uh, for 12 years. We've been married. We have four children. So we're just getting settled in the Kansas City, Missouri area. I've never uh, lived in this area of the country, but we're liking it so far. And uh, starting to explore. Previously, I was at Western Seminary in Portland, Oregon for six years teaching New Testament uh, as well there. So my, my specialty is New Testament studies. Uh, that's what I did my PhD in. Kind of been looking at narrative portions of the New Testament through my studies. So I've done a lot with Matthew and now starting to do a lot with Acts. So um, actually, my interest in the Ascension began in my uh, kind of PhD work. I, I started just recognizing I haven't thought a lot about the Ascension, what the implications are myself. And I started to recognize it's kind of like when you see something like exile or temple theme, you start to see it everywhere. And it felt like that with the Ascension for me. So I was interested in it, but I didn't really, it wasn't really what my project was at that point. And so I just thought, ah, put that on the back burner. I want to think more about the Ascension at some point in my life. Um, And then I was contracted actually to write a commentary on Acts. And I started studying Acts and I was preaching at my church. And so I was just getting into Acts and in Acts 1, 9 through 11, the ascension is narrated. And I was scheduled to preach at my church. And um, our, our main pastor who preaches kind of goes through books, kind of expositional preaching, right? But he let, him, he let me kind of, I, I would preach maybe once a month or once every two months. I could just kind of pick topics and go with it. And so I was studying Acts and I was like, ooh, I'm going to do a sermon on the ascension. That'll be fun because I want to do this. And... I ended up spending just a ton of time on it and had a lot of fun with it. And that really was the foundation of this book Mm -hmm. because then I ended up meeting with somebody from Lexham and he was like, hey, do you have any projects you want to work on? I was like, I'd love to write a little book on the Ascension. And I kind of have an outline for my sermon already. And so this is what I think it would be. And he was like, yeah, let's do this. And so um, the Acts commentary, the sermon, the kind of dissertation, it all fed into me wanting to write on the Ascension. And here we are. That's awesome. And you have an Acts commentary coming out or that is out? 
Yeah, it's coming out. I, I have the first draft done, and it's probably going to come out based on editing. Uh, we're going through the editing process next summer. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. I suppose it might be helpful. Uh, so I'll just read Acts 1, 9 through 11, just so yeah. the listeners can can hear that. And then I'll let you just kind of take it from there and um, give us a brief introduction to, to this doctrine. So this is uh, Acts chapter 1, uh, verses 9 through 11. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So that is the narration of the ascension in Acts chapter 1. So um, you can just take it from there. And I I think it's pretty self-explanatory about what has happened there. But um, just talk to us about, about the ascension and really why you think it's an important doctrine to to know a bit about. Yeah. And maybe first just talking about like, what is it? What what yeah. happened there? Uh, yep. He, Jesus Christ is on the earth in his resurrected form. I mean, I think most people understand this, but just, just let's get specific with what it is. Mm-hmm. And he's with the disciples. This is 40 days after his resurrection. He's taught them for at least 40 days. And he rises visibly, visibly and bodily from the earth into the heavens and a cloud comes and comes covers his leaving. So uh, people have spoken about the ascension in terms of locally, in the sense of spatially, he left the earth and went into the heavens. It was visible. It was a public event, a historical event. I think that's actually really clear from Acts 1, 9 through 11. They're watching him go into the heavens. I don't think this is a hallucination. They're actually standing there watching him. And then bodily, he's still a man, and we, we can hit on this more, but he he rises into the air as a man. He's no longer with us bodily. So now we exist in this time where we're, we're waiting for him, as the angels say, we're waiting for him to return. And he was here, and he's not here any longer, and now we're waiting for him to return. And I think we can get into this now. You didn't ask this question, but we can talk a lot about why it's neglected. But I think one of the reasons it's neglected is we're kind of not sure what to do with that. Like Mm -hmm. the resurrection makes a lot of sense because yeah, he's, he's got his resurrected body. He conquered death. Like this is really good news for us. The Ascension, we can kind of be like the disciples staring up into heaven being like, Hey, what's, uh, what's, (laughs) what's happening here? Like, why, why are you leaving? Actually right before this text, they, they did ask, hey, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this point? And so I think they're kind of thinking after the resurrection, let's get going. Like, it's time. Yeah. Time to go. Let's, let's, let's roll this thing out. Time to establish the kingdom. And Jesus is like, nope, again, I'm going to confuse you guys because it's time for me to leave. And my guess, I mean, it doesn't say what their facial expressions were, that they're kind of standing there open mouth being like, Oh, wait, wait a second. Maybe they had some Old Testament. Hopefully they had some Old Testament background in terms of this is really important. They seem to get what actually happened as Peter preaches the sermon. But the angels have to tell them, hey, time to get going. Actually, the mission, it's time to get going on the mission because you do have the mission statement right before this as well. Jesus sends them out into the earth, but he must ascend before that. So, So all that to say, it's 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 kind of a weird event in the sense of um, from a, also from a modern historical scientific perspective, like where did he go? What what happened when he got out of our atmosphere? <laughs> why didn't he need a spacesuit? Um, oh, why did he need to leave? And then what what are the implications? So th- those are, that's kind of problematizing the whole thing. Like what the resurrection seems to be really good news, and as we share the gospel. 
Uh, I hope we're recovering that idea that like we must have the resurrection in there. This whole book for me was saying, you know, we don't only need the resurrection, but we also need the ascension. It's essential to the gospel. So mm-hmm. that's really the push for me to kind of put it back just in focus. It's I, I don't think many of your listeners would deny the ascension, but rather say, we actually need to talk about the ascension. We need to mention it. I mean, Jordan, you mentioned at the beginning, it's not, it doesn't seem to be mentioned explicitly in some of the Baptist confessions, but historically in many, uh, actually the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the First Council of Constantinople, the Athanasian Creed, there is a separate line for the ascension. So the early church thought it was really, really, really important that he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And um, even in the church calendar, if you follow church calendars, it doesn't end at Easter. It doesn't end at the resurrection. 40 days later, you typically have uh, an ascension Sunday. And I think it shows kind of in lower church traditions that we view Uh, the resurrection kind of as the final celebration. Ah, it's over, victory. Yeah, he won. But it's not over yet. Like he still needs to ascend to the right hand of God. That is a very important act and it's different than the resurrection. So so really, I I just want to say like we need to focus on this. We need to put our attention back on it. We need to include it, I would say, in gospel presentations as well. Hmm. There was like four questions that came to my mind as you (laughs) were talking there. No, no. no. So maybe... Just you, you mentioned that the ascension is essential to the gospel. H- how is that? Because I, I would imagine uh, probably most local church members would kind of look at you funny when you said that the ascension is essential to the gospel. Right, like how, right. What does that mean? Yeah, yeah. So if Jesus does not ascend to the right hand of the Father, he is not enthroned as the king. And if he's not enthroned as the king of heaven and earth, then we've got an issue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, Actually, we've got a major issue because he's not Lord and Messiah. So um, I think the resur- this is where it gets a little confusing. Uh, and we can go back to those Baptist confessions. Many times they'll speak about the exaltation of Jesus. And when we say exaltation, we'll actually mean the resurrection and ascension together, or even throw in the cross there in terms of his exaltation, according to John. So just to be fair, in the New Testament, one of the reasons I think I think we neglect this is because they'll sometimes just speak about his exaltation and be including that ascension reality. But I think in our minds, we usually just think, oh, that's resurrection. And we don't Mm -hmm. think about the ascension. But um, here's where we could get really specific. What's the difference between the resurrection and the ascension? Well, the resurrection affirms that Jesus lives and that forever. And that's very good news. But the ascension affirms that he reigns in that forever. And so these are two different events and the resurrection actually doesn't affirm that he reigns in that forever in the same way. Yeah. He's still on the earth. He, yes, he's designated as King. It is the vindication of Jesus, but there's a unique um, coronation authorization endorsement exaltation to Jesus's work at the Ascension. So you think back to um, kind of ancient times uh, first century, ancient Near Eastern times, as a king was enthroned, they would rise up to that throne and sit down on that throne to solidify that they were the king. That mm-hmm. That is exactly what's happening. But Jesus's throne is not on earth. It's in heaven, showing that he's king of heaven and earth. And then in Revelation, those two realms or those two spheres come together. He brings heaven to earth saying, I'm going to now manifest the heavenly kingdom upon the earth. So if you do not have the ascension, you do not have King Jesus like over mm-hmm. heaven and earth. I, I don't know how else to put that. And in many ways, you don't have a gospel message anymore. So 
and, and I don't mean to be cutting on people who are like, oh, I didn't say the ascension. Now I didn't get to the gospel. <laughs> if you get to the point that Jesus died and he was victorious, I think you're assuming the ascension in that. So I'm not, yeah. I'm not trying to make people all nervous. Sometimes we like, forget the resurrection. So <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's right. Yes, yeah. that's even worse. Exactly. I'm not trying to add like one more point. Oh, we've got to get his birth. We got to get his life. We got to right. get his death. We got to get his resurrection. We got to get his ascension. But at least if you have that in your mind mm-hmm. and thinking of the ascension, you're you're going to emphasize the victory, the exaltation piece, yeah. um, the the authorization piece. This is the Father saying. Jesus has accomplished all that I sent him to accomplish, and now I am enthroning him as the king of the universe. And um, I'll let you guys ask other questions, but a key text here is Daniel 7. Daniel 7, when the beasts, uh, the kingdoms of the earth, are trying to ascend in one way to the heavens, and only one will be able to ascend, and that is the Son of Man. And so that's like the theology of the ascension is really built on so many Old Testament texts, key Mm -hmm. Old Testament texts. So maybe we'll talk about the Old Testament background in a second here. Um, I do want to note something because apparently I can't spell because I control. I I just looked in the office of the mediator as you were talking about in the second London and I was reading through it and I did find that it says he ascended, but it doesn't expand on that whatsoever. Yeah. Um, That said, you, you mentioned that in the Ascension, I guess Jesus is spatially ascending somewhere. And I've been thinking about this a lot in my in my own writing and research. What does it mean that he spatially ascended? Is, is heaven a spatially located place? Uh, what does that look like? Because in a lot of my reading, um, it's either really, really vague. Yeah. Uh, and just I'm not going to say anything about it because I don't want to have to answer this question. <laughs> or we get into like some weird theories like Hud Hudson talks about hyperspace which is like way over my head for the most part uh, and really confusing. Let's and... get into black hole theology right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so may- I know you've done some stuff on space. Uh, so maybe you talk a little bit about that. What does it mean? Where did he, where did he go? Yeah, that's a great question. And one that I've struggled to answer too. And I think people struggle to answer because the new Testament is not clear on it. Like they just say he's in heaven and we're like, so where is that? So Here's what I like to say, and I, you know, over time, maybe I'll shift how I describe this. Um, this is my best shot at it right now. Number one, we want to affirm that Jesus is still a man and he still has a body. So there must be some physical aspect to it. Good. How we explain that, I don't quite know, but we do, we do not want to disembody Jesus right now. Hmm. Okay, so just start there. Uh, the second thing, though, I'd want to say is that it goes beyond our comprehension of, of kind of time and space. True. That the, the heavens and the spatial movement of Jesus is both real and historical and symbolic. And so I don't think we can like travel to a certain place and be like, ah, there's the heavens. I think there's some reality that goes beyond our comprehension about the resurrected body, 1 Corinthians 15 the body from heaven versus the body from earth, the spiritual body. And I don't think what they mean there by spiritual body is not is not physical, yeah. but it's different. And there's something that goes beyond, like as he like appeared randomly to the, not randomly, but appeared to the disciples without going through the door, right? He's just there. Like, how do you explain that physically? I don't know, but he's physically there. I think we take that same concept and think of the heavens. And so what we are so prone to do 
after Newton, after Galileo, is to think purely scientifically and purely in terms of like, where is this located? Before, and, and we can be very thankful for scientific advances on this, before that they viewed space as relational. And what they mean, meant by that is that as you ascend towards something, that was signifying something um, symbolic and theological. And, and as a king ascended to their throne, that means they're in charge because they're the highest. And so what's happening, I think, in the worldview of the biblical authors is as Jesus ascends, they're saying he's the highest of the highest because no, he doesn't even occupy the, the highest kingdom on the earth. He's the highest king in the heaven. And the heaven is above the earth, and it's more important than the earth, and it's from it's the true reality from which everything on the earth comes from. Therefore, we worship him. So th- I like to press those two points. Number one, the physicality of it. Mm-hmm. Yes, don't deny that. And number two, it goes beyond that. So <clears throat> a related question that I want, have. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Just if you guys want to ask other questions about that, that's fine. I, you know, I can't. Uh, anyway, anyways, yeah. I think Feel my question is kind of related. So, yeah. um, so the ascension is is very closely related to the second coming because we even in the passages that we just read, the, the, the men in the white robes say that he's gonna um, he's gonna come in the same way that you just saw him go into heaven, right? So, um, help us think through how how do we think about what the second coming will look like? Like, what is that? What is that experience going to be like? So I, I assume um, there were a limited amount of people who were in this area who could see Jesus uh, locally and visibly ascend. So then, when he returns, is it going to be the same exact way, or is there going to be differences? Is it going to be um, somehow this worldwide phenomenon where everyone somehow sees him return or is it just going to be a few people and then people start tweeting about it? I mean, what, what's going to, you know, like, <laughs> like how, how, how do we think through that? Yeah. Only people in Jerusalem and the ones at the right spot are going to be able to see him. No. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't exactly know, but we do have texts that say every eye will see him when he returns. So it, it seems to me, if I'm just putting this together, that he's going to return according to Acts 1 the same way that he left in terms of it. It will, it will be a physical bodily return in on the clouds of heaven. First Thessalonians affirms that. But then it also says every eye will see him. I think there's something that shifts in the reality of Jesus being king of the universe, that he is then going to come and manifest his kingship in a different way even than he left. So it's the same and different. Mm -hmm. So I don't think we're denying what the angels say. I think he's going to come back in the same way. But when he comes back, it's going to be the close. It's like curtain close. And like, it's over. It's like first, just read first and second Thessalonians. Like the end is now here. So I think there's going to be a unique manifestation of his presence in the heavens. Again, this is where physically I can't explain it. How will we all be able to see him? I don't know. But how is he in the heavens as a bodily man right now? I don't know. The New Testament is just really not interested in explaining that scientifically, physically. Like that's just not what they're their aims are. And so I think we can um, stick our toe out a little bit and say, uh, it seems to affirm this. How will that happen? I don't know. It, it, for me, that's kind of the same thing with some of the Genesis stuff. Like what exactly is going on here? Well, I don't think it's exactly answer. It's not written to answer those modern yeah. scientific questions that we have. Um, it is affirming that 
all people recognize Jesus as king. So does that mean he has to come down first and then somehow they'll recognize him on the earth? I don't I don't think so because it says every eye will see him in the cl- it seems to imply the cloud. So that's I want to go there and then say, I I don't quite understand how it's going to happen that way, but I trust that it can because he made everything and he can appear in the sky and everyone can see him. Yeah. Yeah. If you're in Portland, if you're in Portland and there's lots of clouds, hopefully you'll be all right. You know, that's the, that's the only thing I was thinking about. Yeah. It's just wild to think about like, you know, that, that he's going to come back in the same way that he left. But like you said, you know, the Bible also says that every eye is going to see and, every I didn't see when he left. So there, right. there's the kind of a continuity and discontinuity, I guess, between the Ascension and the second coming. So that's, that's right. Um, that's interesting. So um, uh, how does the Ascension impact the, the threefold office of Christ? Um, t- talk to us a little bit about that. And, and maybe does Christ continue in, in all three of those functions um, for eternity or does, does one or all of those functions uh, cease at a certain period of time? Yeah, that's a great question. So one of the things I wanted to do with this book is not only, like you said, why does the ascension matter for the gospel? And I really spoke about the kind of authorization, endorsement, coronation of the king. But I also, what I wanted to do with this book is press into the activity of Jesus now. So the fact that he left doesn't mean he's inactive. The fact that he's sitting at the right, we didn't talk about this, but the ascension and session is the sitting of Christ. And I just took those kind of both together in the ascension. So you have two different acts, ascension and then sitting at the right hand of God. Um, but 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 all that to say, we, we shouldn't assume that Jesus is now just like waiting around like next to the Father, like, hey, like when are we going to wrap this thing up? Let's, uh, let's watch a little bit and see what happens. No, I, I think the Bible is pointing us to the reality that Actually, Christ's work shifts into a higher gear as prophet, priest, and king at the ascension, which is why the ascension is such good news. And so we we need to think of Christ as not inactive, but actually more active now, but just in a different sense. He's not active bodily upon the earth. He's active now from the heavens. And if we think of it through the lens of prophet, priest, and king, I think that gives us a nice kind of holistic picture of what he's doing. If you only think about him as king, then you're like, well, he's ruling overall. Well, what does that look like? Well, we can we can tease some of that out, but I think adding priest and prophet kind of roles because it was very clear that he was a prophet, priest, and king upon the earth as well then you get a more full orb picture of what he's doing now. So the three, and we can press into these, uh, but the three things that I said based on these roles as a a prophet, he's building his church. He's continuing to support his church. He's continuing to empower his church. He's giving them, he gave them the Holy Spirit so that they can do the same actions that he did upon the earth. As the priest, and, and again, we can dive in more to these, as the priest, he intercedes in heaven for us. So he's, not not only doing that, I mean, I, I said put intercession, but you also want to say he's he's presenting his blood. He comes up with his blood and presents it before the Father as the perfect sacrifice, and then he intercedes as a high priest would, and then he turns and blesses his people. He blesses his people. So that that's important. I think we miss some of that as well. And then as king, as the king, he has conquered his enemies. He's been installed as the king of heaven and earth, and now he rules over his church and the world. So getting that kind of full orb picture of what Christ is doing, Christ is not inactive, and we need to think of Christ not only in what he has done in the past and what he will do in the future, but what he's doing now. 
So uh, we can press into more of those if you want, but there, there's a snapshot. Yeah. So I guess with those offices, none of they, they all seem to continue post ascension. Would you say that any of those terminate after at some point? Like, does he, is he always going to be functioning? As, what's that? Like in, in the, the new, new creation. creation. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's a great question. Um, I, you know, I didn't even think about that. You know, when we're with him, he doesn't have to empower us to like build the church anymore. And so his prophetic function, maybe this is, you know, I'm just uh, thinking out loud right now, but I think he will still be in these roles, but those roles will shift. Hmm. He will still be the true word that we look to as the prophet. He will still be our intercessor, the one who uh, intercedes for us, but in a different way because we'll we'll be with Jesus and with the Father, right? In the new heavens and new earth. And then um, he'll still be the king, but he doesn't have to conquer any more enemies. It's 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 kind of like it's over, and he's been completely installed, and the work is done in that sense. So, yeah, I almost contradicted myself there. It's like the work is done, but it's it's not done another way. You, you almost look to him now and just worship him for what he's done, but he still exists in those roles. I wonder if it's the same way um, in that a king, like a king, continues to act as a king as they are installed as king, right? Mm-hmm. And the prophet. But there's a sense in which there's no, um, there, there there's no forces that are fighting against it anymore. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know. You guys have any thoughts about that? That's a great question. Well, so we we had a conversation earlier with uh, Aaron Pendergrass about the mediatorial office of Christ, and he was talking about Calvin. And I, Jordan, correct me if, if I'm wrong, but I think I'm remembering correctly that the way he laid it out was that 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 Calvin said that the 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 priestly and the, and the prophet role um, would cease in the mm. new creation, but the kingly would continue. Is that right, Jordan? No, I mean, just because yeah, Calvin says it doesn't make it true. I'm just trying to set If the Calvin table. says it, I would, I would take that, you know, I'm, I'm okay with that. <laughs> uh, and I think he, I think the main idea was that there were multiple functions that are beneath these offices in the mediatorial offices. Yeah. And one of those functions was this function of union. Mm-hmm. Um, which would not be negated at all in in the new creation because we still need a mediator to unite us yeah. to God. Yeah, um, yeah, but, that's interesting. I'd have to tease that out more in my mind. I I like to think of these three roles as a um, if if I can give a visual picture on audio, like a, almost like a three Venn diagrams that are overlapping but also separate. Yeah. And so that they th- there's a sense in which they all collide in one sense and they're also separate in another. So how a few of them cease, sorry, Calvin, and then one of them continues, there's still a prophetic sense to Jesus in the new heavens and new earth. I, 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 yeah. yeah, that's and another could, another book for another time, maybe. That's interesting. Right. <laughs> I just want to be I like, I like that, the idea that they they all stay, even the priestly role, I, I don't know what it is. I don't have like a biblical proof text on hand saying the priestly role continues in, in this way, but it seems like I would want it to continue even in the new creation, you know, even if I've been completely reconciled and restored and everything, I don't know why I'd want to remove his office as priest, Hmm. you know, post ascension and, and return and all of that. It just, maybe it, the way he's functioning shifts. Yeah. I would still think the office is, is active. That's hard because it's like, do we need an intercessor at that point? Or are we then completely in union where we don't need that? 
it's it certainly wouldn't be interceding in the same way. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. I'm not sinning anymore. Right. Exactly. Exactly. But I don't know. These are great so, questions. <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah. Um, maybe, you know, in, in your study of this doctrine, what was the most surprising thing that you kind of encountered? Or maybe what was the most challenging thing that you came across that was difficult to think about? Maybe it's something we've already touched on. I don't know. Yeah. Um, maybe surprising thing, and then I'll say challenging thing surprising was that in one way, the New Testament, and you need to, I'll say this and then I want to qualify it. In one way, the New Testament doesn't give us a lot of theology on the ascension. And what I mean by that is that the two places that's narrated, Brandon, you read one of them, Acts, and then the end of Luke, it kind of just is like a few verses. And I note in the book, it's yeah. like six total verses or five, something like that in the whole Bible that it's actually narrated, which is one of the reasons we probably neglect it. They don't like say, oh, now he's king, now he's prophet, now he's priest. This is great. This is really good news. What you really have to do is fill out from the Old Testament the theology of the ascension. And what you find when you begin to look back to the Old Testament is you've got all these stories of these people ascending, like these either really to the heavens or to up Mount Sinai. So you have priests, Moses ascending Mount Sinai, you have um, Adam and Eve descending from the mountain of God and then seeking to ascend again. You have Elijah and Elisha, Elisha watching watching Elijah ascend. You have, um, you have the priests just going into the temple and there's some sort of ascension thing. And so you've got all this kind of ascension terminology, imagery. I already mentioned the Daniel 7. You've got the Psalm 2 text where the Lord installs his king on Mount Zion, his holy hill. You've got um, Psalm 110.1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So if you just take, and this is what I love, you just take, what are the three, like besides Genesis 1 and 3, three of the most important texts in the whole Old Testament, I would say for sure three of them are, and we could probably add more, but three of them are Daniel 7, Psalm 110.1, and Psalm 2. Yeah. All of those are ascension texts. And we know that's true because in the sermons and acts, he's like just quoting those texts again and again. And he's like, this is what's happened. This is what's happened. Jesus is alluding to or actually quoting Daniel 7 all the time. So guess what was surprising to me? And this shouldn't be surprising to me because I know this. The Old Testament isn't just history, right? It, it's yeah. like got your theology built into it. They're assuming the theology of the Old Testament. So what we need to do to understand actually what happened at the Ascension is read our Old Testament and see what happened. So so what actually happened when Jesus went up to the right hand of the Father? Like it doesn't tell us. Well, actually Psalm 110 one tells us. He says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What actually happened? Well, Daniel 7, it says he ascended and the Ancient of Days accepted him. What actually happened? Well, that was the installation, Psalm 2, uh, of the King of Israel and now the King of heaven and earth on Mount Zion, his holy hill, which is more than Jerusalem. This is like where it's not just a physical place anymore. It's actually... Oh, now we're getting nerdy, but uh, physical <laughs> Jerusalem and the throne was representative of what was in heaven, according to mm -hmm. Psalm 2 and how they're interpreting now. It's not just physical, but it's more than physical. And so when David is then installed as the king, that is a visual representation. That is a trope. That is a type. That is a, a musical chord, which is then picked up by Christ and brought to its climax by Christ. And so kind of my emphasis and my push for people is... You, you read this narration of the ascension 
and it feels like there's not much there. We'll go back to the Old Testament and you'll find, wow, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Um, so that's surprising. Let me get to, I'll get to challenging. The most challenging piece of doing this was to think of how he's still the prophet in heaven. Priest is easy because it's in Hebrews. He's interceding. It's all over there. King is easy. uh, All these texts I just talked about. The prophet part was the hardest one because there's a real sense in which he seems to give, and I'm probably being imprecise in my language, but I'm sure your listeners will love it because I'm just thinking out loud. (laughs) He seems to give the prophetic function more uniquely to the church as he empowers them to speak his word, to perform signs and wonders, and he gives them the spirit. So I need to tease this out a little bit more. After I was done writing it, I thought the prophetic function is different. He's still the prophet, but there's a uniqueness to him giving the church that function now to be the prophets upon the earth, which I'm not denying actually that we're priests upon the earth. We intercede for others. We present gifts and yeah. sacrifices to God. I think there's we pray for people, so forth and so on. We're, we're priestly types. I mean, First Peter, right? We're a kingdom of priests. Um, we're also the royal family of God. So we're kings and queens upon the earth. So I'm not denying that those things uh, are real for the church as well. But there's a sense in which I struggled a little bit to find, to think through how is he still like acting as the prophet in heaven? It seems like he's giving a lot of that function to his church, but here's how I reconciled it. Um, I reconciled it because the theology of the head is connected to the body. He's still the head prophet and he's giving that function to his body, which is connected to him, who then goes out into the earth and continues to spread his name as his prophetic mouthpieces. But that doesn't mean he's not prophet. It means he's the head prophet, and then we follow him in that. And it seems like maybe we should expect the prophetic role to be a little bit different for us here since God has given us the written word, right? So, I mean, we have that physically here, like with us, like in front of us in our Bible. So so there's a, I don't know, I'm trying to, I guess I'm thinking out loud now, but um, it, it seems like we should, just by the very way that God has chosen um to specially reveal himself through the written word that we should expect that prophetic role to be different in the life of the church. But I don't know. I'm yeah. Just... And and there's a really interesting text just to kind of pitch off that um, in second Peter, where you've gotten second Peter, these people who are denying that Jesus is going to return. And Peter supports that he's going to return by saying, Hey, we saw Jesus glorified on the Mount of Transfiguration. We saw that. So he's using that as an argument in Second Peter 1 to say, we know we saw his majestic glory, that that's going to be manifest one day, and that's going to happen in the second coming. But then he has an interesting line in Second Peter 1.19, where he says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place. More fully confirmed than what? Then the transfiguration... I- not everyone takes it this way, but I think he's saying we actually have more surety now that he has resurrected and ascended than us standing there with him on the Mount of Transfiguration, hmm. which struck me as like, I mean, in my mind, I'm like, I want to see him on the Mount of Transfiguration. That sounds like it's better than the state <laughs> that I'm in right now. Yeah, But he's saying we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed now. Why? Because the word 
I think this is what you're getting at, Brandon. The word has been confirmed. The prophetic word about Jesus in his death, his resurrection, ascension has been fully proven to be true. So we now know more. We're like, we sit in a more, this is what Peter's theology is in, in first Peter one at the end too. We, we sit in a privileged place. So we, we do have, uh, this prophetic word more fully confirmed in the reality that Jesus has ascended. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's helpful. So you already mentioned earlier how the ascension should play a role in how we um, proclaim the gospel to others. Can you talk a little bit about specifically um, the particular role it has in preaching and how, how, cause we have a lot of pastors who listen. So uh, I think it would be helpful, you know, for us to think through how the ascension matters, you know, in, in the way we deliver sermons and and how we say things, things we should maybe say more often than we than we don't say, reminders verbally that we should give to our people. So, um, how does this yeah. affect preaching? And maybe you know, as I think about it, there, there's probably a lot more focus on this in other Tradition. traditions. That's right. Than there is in like our ba- own Baptist tradition. That's right. Or those who are like somewhat scared of the church calendar to some degree, it seems like. Yeah. Um, just don't have a regular reminder like others do. That's right. Yeah. So when I say recovering neglected doctrine, it's not neglected in every sphere of Christian yeah. circles. It's it's the circles that I feel that I'm running around in that I haven't heard right. as much. So there are traditions that continue. And just getting to that, I know I already talked about the church calendar. Uh, I think it would be really smart to just add Ascension Sunday. If you're so most people are already doing Christmas, Good Friday and Easter. Why not add Ascension Sunday as well? 40 days later. That means you hit it at least once a year. Like just it's really simple. And actually the church calendar had right after that was Pentecost Sunday, which I think you should talk about the Holy Spirit every year too. So yeah. I I mean maybe not you maybe you don't have to do it at the exact time as the church calendar says, but I love that idea that every year we talk about his incarnation, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Like, hopefully we're getting to that anyway, but this is just a stopgap to say, just in case you got stuck in, um, I don't know, Leviticus all year. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, you'll get, yeah. to, the, you'll get to these points. So, um, that I would say... I would just push towards that. And, and at my old church, I got tasked because I got passionate about it with preaching every Ascension Sunday, which was totally fun for me because I was like, yes, I'd love to do this. So now I have about three Ascension sermons that I've done. And I just, honestly, I just picked different texts. One time I did Acts. One time I did Daniel 7. One time I decided to, uh, I think I did Psalm 2 or something like that. So um, I just picked a different text and went at it. Uh, in terms of preaching other things, I'd say, if, if you don't want to do that, just remember to focus on Jesus's victory, and which is true in the resurrection. But like the basic confession of Christians is that Jesus is Lord, Messiah, King. And that, again, mm-hmm. is not the reality unless he has ascended to the right hand of the Father. So we worship the reigning King. We are in a political uh, election season, right? November's coming up. Well, remember, we worship the king who has already been enthroned. So if you want to have a good message for politics right now, well, here it is, the ascension. The ascension confirms we already have a king. We don't need to worry about who's going to be the next president. We don't need to worry about elections. We can be involved. We can care about these things because it matters. But ultimately, that's not where we place our hope. And so getting to the reality that Jesus has already conquered and that he will come back one day and manifest his kingdom upon the earth 
is a really hope-filled message, which should fill every single sermon that we preach. So I, it doesn't mean you have to say the words ascension every time, but I think the theology mm-hmm. underneath it is just what we need to get to that we, yes, in the song, I mean, I'm not trying to deny that we don't preach sermons about depression and calling out to the Lord, but we also preach sermons about the triumph of the King. The yeah. triumph of yeah. the King is, is our main message. And so I would just say that's, that's like the gospel that we need to have every time in there. The other piece that I'd add to that is um, we look to our glorified Savior and we will one day be glorified as well. And that's a hopeful message as well. So as he has been glorified and enthroned, we will one day be with him and that will be our victory. And so we look forward to our victory. So there's a hope there as well. And then for comfort, in terms of comfort, the intercession part, it sounds like you had a podcast about the mediatorial role of Christ earlier, but um, when you don't know what to pray, when you feel like you have no words, when you sin and fall down and you feel like you can't get back up, remember Jesus is at the right hand of God representing his people and he's not embarrassed by you and he's not ashamed of you at all. He's saying that that person is my person and I died for them and here's my blood on their behalf. And not only that, I'm going to actually pray for them. I mean, like I like to think of it, he whispers in the ear of the father, right? Like mm-hmm. he, 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 he's sitting at the right hand advocating for you, which is a great, like you have, and according to Ephesians and Colossians, we're seated with him in some mysterious way as well. We're enthroned in the heavens with him. And so that is a very encouraging and hopeful message. And then finally, I say it's, a, it's for preaching, it's an empowering message and the prophetic, you have the Holy Spirit. You have the spirit that Jesus had, and you are empowered to go out and do the same works that Jesus did. Don't be scared. Don't be scared. Look at what Jesus and the apostles did. You have that same spirit. And according to John, it's better that Jesus left and that you now have the Holy Spirit. I think we always wish, like I watched The Chosen, right? My kids are always like, why can't Jesus just be here on the earth? And I'm like, you know, that's a, that's a good inclination. I want Jesus here on the earth too. I want him to wrap this thing up. but he says, it's better if I leave for the time being. And we have to believe that that's true. We have to believe that it's actually better for us now that we have the Holy Spirit than with walking with Jesus bodily. <laughs> like The whole New Testament affirms we're in a better state now than the apostles who walked with them. I think that's really hard for us to grapple with. It's hard for yeah. me because I'm saying that because it's hard for me to grapple with, but it's the reality. And I think the reason it's hard for us to understand is because we uniquely have the spirit after he ascended. I, I, we didn't get into this, but there, there was a sense in which the spirit was not released in the same way until after Jesus ascended. Jesus broke the barrier between heaven and earth, and then the spirit came down and he filled all of his followers. And that had not happened before. That's the new covenant promise in the same mm-hmm. way. Yes, they had this. Some some had the spirit in the Old Testament, but I, it was different. There's books about that. There's different. Now we have the spirit that Jesus has, and according to the Gospel of John, again, we can now do greater works even than Jesus did. Like, do we believe that? Now, what does that mean? I think I think what that means is not that I'm necessarily personally going to be raising people from the dead, but think about this: Jesus traveled a very small distance upon the earth but his followers are spiritually and maybe physically raising people from the dead in China, in South America, right? In Africa, in the United States, in England. 
everywhere, like everywhere that the body of Christ is, the actions of Christ are actually going on. And those are truly, in one sense, then greater works. So it's empowering, it's encouraging, and I don't remember, I should have a third point because I'm a Baptist, but I don't remember what my third point was. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I don't know what, I I feel like I I don't know what to say because that was also just really good and encouraging and you almost made me cry at one point. So I feel like I need to just stop. It's a great way to to do it. Hopefully I don't end most sermons with, I forgot my third point, but (laughs) be blessed and be filled. Go in peace. (laughs) Right. Um, So obviously we want to direct the, our listeners to, to your book, uh, the Ascension of Christ uh, recovering a neglected doctrine, but are there any other uh, sources that you think would be beneficial? Um, if somebody wants to maybe go a little bit deeper, uh, any theologians that you found particularly helpful when you were doing your own study that we could take a look at? Yeah. Um, another easier book would be uh, Tim Chester and John Woodrow, which is um, called The Ascension of the Man, Christ Jesus, or something like that. That's a great, it's like an X 29 book. It's a great little book, also short like mine. Um, I really enjoyed that book. So that's another tr- book on the Ascension if you're just really interested in mind it. You didn't like mine. You want to find another one. Um, (laughs) The other person, if you want to go deeper, would be Douglas Farrow, has written two books on the Ascension. Really good. One is called Ascension and Ecclesia. That's pretty deep. And the other one is just called The Ascension. Douglas Farrow. Um, He has done great work on the Ascension. And I would just push people towards his work and say it's just it it was hugely beneficial. The other people that you could look at, honestly, Calvin does a lot on the Ascension, but you got to find it in his institutes. Uh, Bart, Carl Bart does a lot on the Ascension, but you got to find it in his church. um, Is it church dogmatics? Is that what they call it? You'll never come out if you go there. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And then Torrance. Not because it's bad. Yeah, yeah. Just because it's massive. T.F. Torrance has great stuff on the Ascension in his book, Atonement. So if you look at T.F. Torrance's work. So some of the best stuff I found on the Ascension wasn't in like a separate book on the Ascension, but actually in these Mm -hmm. systematic theologians who are reflecting on it in a really helpful way, but it's just packaged in in a bigger book. Now, I'll be honest, I haven't read your book yet, so that's, you know, on me. I feel, I, you know, I'm done. I'm hanging up. Pe- we've got all these people who come on and they've all written books. I'm like, all right, I'm going to try to read all of this before the interview and I just can't keep up. No, it's so okay. I imagine all of these you probably cite or reference in your book somewhere. I think we have a bibliography at the end. It was a book that we didn't have a lot of uh, footnotes in. And so. If I quoted from them, I obviously cited yeah. them. Or if I got an idea from them, I cited them. Um, but yeah, uh, listen, just rewind this and listen to it again. You can find it. <laughs> but no, no, no. I, I put them all in the show notes. So if you're listening, okay. I, you just click the link. All right, good. Uh, you know, I'm just curious for my own, you know, interest. If, you know, if I'm reading the book, there's more sources in there. I imagine to go check out if I get sure. curious. Yeah. So. Patrick, for, for those who are interested in following you and they don't already know where you exist out on the internet, where can they go to keep up with your work? Yeah, Twitter is where I stay most active. So PJ something under slash Shriner or something like that on Twitter. So I, I try to stay pretty active with what I'm doing on Twitter, what I'm writing, uh, things like that. That's basically, I used to have a blog, but um, the blog replace i guess twitter replaced the blog so i no longer do blogging uh and then i do you know i did that podcast which i'm now i'm now done with but food trucks in babylon 
uh, which was a Western Seminary podcast. We did about 28 episodes. And so if you want to go on and listen to some of those, they're still up there. They'll be up there. I don't know. How long do podcast episodes last? Forever, maybe. They'll be up there for a while. Awesome. So So you could go there and check those things out. Good deal. So listeners, go check that stuff out. Uh, I commend you to go find a copy of this book and buy it. Uh, I'm going to do that myself. Uh, I I thought you've been super interesting in this whole whole thing, and I found it um, extremely beneficial. So thank you for coming on to talk with uh, talk with us. Uh, did you have any closing thoughts you wanted to just put in there? I'll let you have the floor for for one last second if you want. Uh, <laughs> I can't think of anything profound. We worship an ascended king. That's who we worship. He's not just resurrected. He's ascended. And so um, that that's who we follow and continue to proclaim him. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. That's 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 awesome. So, guys, I, I check you. I, I'll check you out. I, I'm not even talking straight. You know, the, <laughs> la, the last episode that we recorded, uh, just so you know, I, I signed off by saying, like, guys, gals, and anything in between. <laughs> like... <laughs> As I said that, I'm like, what am I saying? So this time, for those who are listening, um, I'm just going to tell you, anyone who's listening, uh, you've been listening to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet, and we thank you for tuning in, despite my uh, blunders in signing off, apparently. 